So with that, um, I want to encourage you now to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. And we are going to um, read the whole book of Jude. And um, I have uh, <clears throat> asked Debbie Mason if she would come and she's going to read for us. I want to invite you to stand as uh, she reads, if you are able to. And um, let's just uh, allow this to be an opportunity to be refreshed by the whole book so that we can look at a part of it together, okay? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God 
waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Lord, you are a great God. We are in awe of the fact that you would love us enough to condescend, to reach down, to send your son to be like us, and Lord, to go to a cross and to die on that cross, knowing full well that um, your son would bear the, the wrath, Lord, that was necessary to, to pay for the sins of mankind. And Lord, we thank you that not only did you do that, making the way of salvation, but Lord, you also have given us your truth so that we can understand the way of salvation and Lord that we can comprehend what it is you're doing and how we are to live and how we're to respond and Lord even as we come to a letter like Jude um, uh, even as as Debbie read Lord there is a passion there is a tone there is a a spirit of you being glorified that is underneath all of this that Lord we need to grasp we need to see that uh, what Jude is saying for us today is so critically important to help us in our walk, to help us know you, to help us live our lives for your glory. And Lord, I just ask that, that right now during this time that we would, we would fight to keep our attention focused on you and what, what food you have for us today. And Lord, that we would receive, Lord, the food that you are serving. And Lord, we, we, would, we would digest it, Lord, that we would we would meditate on it, that we would grow because of it, Lord, and we would be, uh, Lord, we would be protected and, and guarded and uh, um, encouraged, Lord, by your truth for your glory. Allow me simply to be your messenger. Lord, help my, my words to reflect your truth and to build up the body of Christ, and Lord, to do that for your glory, not my own. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, let me... Uh, um, just first of all, just kind of set the stage, as some of you know who are regulars, we're going through the book of Jude, and uh, last week we, we did kind of a flyover and we focused on the first couple of verses. Um, today we're focusing on verses 3 and 4, and in your bulletin you have kind of the, the chunks that we're going to be looking at so you can anticipate where we're going to go, and should lead us right before Christmas, and uh, then my intention is uh, come New Year we're going to jump into the book of Ephesians. And I think that's going to be very healthy for us as a church. And I think that we are going to um, really grow and learn and uh, be at a place where we, can, where we can really understand what it means to be the church. So let's, let's think now um, about Jude and his little letter. And don't be, uh, don't be kind of thinking, oh, it's just a little letter so it doesn't carry much. Um, there is an there is incredible punch in this letter for our edification. Um, in 480 B.C., a Greek king by the name of Leonidas took his army of 300 hoplite warriors, trained Spartans from the age of seven to face the fierce and mighty Persian army under Xerxes I. Um, he also led about six to 7,000 other uh, Greek soldiers from the various city-state 
um, regions that gathered to take on this particular army. The problem was um, Xerxes' army numbered between 250,000, some estimates, if you include the, 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 the soldiers or the sailors that were on the ships, about 2 million. And here they are with you know, six to 7,000 plus these 300 uh, mighty warriors, so to speak. And they gathered at a place called Thermopylae. And it was a strategic place that Leonidas chose because it was a coastal kind of pass that entered then into the mountains. And uh, Xerxes' army would have to go through this particular pass. And so what happened was they, they, they placed themselves there recognizing that, that their stand in this place would be the safety of their people, the Greek city-states that, that had to unite together to protect this incredible army. And there have been Persian attacks and Persian trouble uh, uh, for, for many years um, prior to that. And, and this was really coming to a head because they had heard about Xerxes. They knew his mighty uh, army was coming. And so they had to make this last stand. And so one of the things that, that we find is as, as they stood there on the first day of battle, as they were gathered there to confront this Persian army, uh, Xerxes sent 10,000 Medes, because his army was made up of different peoples also. And 10,000 Medes were slaughtered that day by this meager army. And Xerxes had to think, what else am I going to do? So he also sent in his elite immortals, they were called, but they failed. They would come in and they would shoot their arrows and they could not penetrate the armies that were standing there uh, because of the, the kind of shields that these hoplite warriors had. On the second day, the Greeks uh, held off 50,000 Persian soldiers and Xerxes was forced to withdraw. Now you have to understand, when you've got this huge army that's coming, the army behind you still is trying to find a place to go. And they had come to this place where they were stuck. And so there's this kind of little gap between them. And so he, he kind of stepped back and reevaluated uh, re the situation. And there was a Greek trader uh, that, that approached the Persian camp and told Xerxes that there was another way that you could get around and you could actually uh, catch the Greeks on their flank. And so Xerxes sent out a significant portion of his army uh, and was led by this Greek trader around the, uh, the backside of where the Greeks had, been, um, ha had stationed themselves. Now, the picture basically was this pass, and uh, Leonidas had, had established his 300 hoplite warriors at the front of this pass. On the first day of battle, there were about another 1,000 or so that came and fought with him. But on this third day, um, and as they recognized that, that the, the armies were coming, these 7,000 or so were back behind the pass. And so these guys were holding these guys off. When the, these Greek soldiers that were back in the past saw the Persian army coming, they fled. And the hoplite army, if they could have run themselves, but they decided, no, we're going to make a stand here. We're going to stay and we're going to fight. And uh, history you know, shows that they, they stood there and they fought valiantly and they held off the army significantly enough so that those other soldiers could get back to their hometowns so that the peoples that would be nearest that area would be able to flee the cities and get to safety. And it took the better part of a day for 300 men to hold off this mighty army. Now, friends, I was just thinking about what it means to contend. And there's an example of 300 
soldiers that are gathered together, shield to shield, shoulder to shoulder, against a mighty foe, and were contending for their lives, contending for their people. And Jude here is writing us a letter, and he's writing the people in that early church a letter that says, contend for the faith. And he's calling for the churches to gather together, shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, and to fight a mighty battle against ungodliness, against false teaching. But I want to remind you of something that, as we looked at last week, we noted that there is a tone, a warm tone to this letter. You could read it in a harsh way because that word judgment and ungodliness and things like that are throughout it. But there is this warm tone, a pastoral tone, so to speak, that is kind of undergirding this letter. It's a, it's a, a letter that reminds the people of their calling and their love and their per- perseverance in Christ Jesus. But now he gets to the heart of his message. Let's focus in a little bit on what he says in this heart, verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now what we have in these two verses are both the theme of the book and the occasion for its writing. In other words, there was a reason why Jude ends up writing this letter. It changed. But the theme in verse 3 simply can be stated this way, contend for the faith. And that theme is then answered um, later uh, later in verses 17 through 23. And then the occasion can be summarized really by this little phrase, certain men have crept in unnoticed. And then it goes on and talks about what they were doing. So they were teaching these, this perverted gospel. And that is illustrated, that is explained, it is dealt with in verses 5 through 16. And we'll look at that, some of that next week and the week following. But this is kind of like the occasion. This, this is giving us the point of the letter and the reason why the letter is being written and kind of paints the picture of what is yet to come in this short little letter. So we can summarize it. Uh, by saying this, that Jude is penning an urgent appeal because of an ungodly infiltration. An urgent appeal because of an ungodly infiltration. Now friends, what Jude is saying to the churches in the early church, Jude could just as well be saying today. And by virtue of God's, God's providence and his word being inspired and us opening it today, he is saying the same thing to us today. The same issues that Jude was facing, that Jude is speaking to, are the same issues that we as a church are also going to face. And so there is an urgent appeal to us about an ungodly infiltration. What are we going to do about that? How are we going to approach it? So first of all, I would like for us to look at the urgent appeal. And let's think through what this urgent appeal is about. First, We note that Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. And we could breeze right through that. And here's one of the things that helps us understand the heart of Jude. Jude is a pastor. Jude cares for the flock. He calls them beloved. They are 
those whom he loves, whom he cares about. There is something intimate about this relationship that's going on. So this is a passionate appeal with a word of endearment reminding the readers of this letter about their common love. And in particular, his pastoral love for his people or for God's people. And this should be a reminder of us, even as we are um, considering uh, moving into elders, about what an elder is like and this, this, this responsibility, this, this, this attitude that God puts in the heart of an elder to love the flock and to care for that flock. This intimate relationship between shepherds and sheep. Now friends, it's, it's right for Jude to call them beloved. It would be right for me to call you beloved. And many pastors do that. They call their flock beloved. There is a, a warmth about that because there is a love for the sheep by the shepherds. And what does every faithful pastor eagerly delight in doing? He delights in equipping the saints and feeding the sheep through preaching and teaching and writing about their common salvation. Now the common salvation, you might want to say, is the meat and potatoes of our equipping ministry. For some of you, it would be the tortillas, beans, and cheese of our equipping ministry. All right? It is the core of what we are about. As pastors and teachers, as we are in home groups, we want to be equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. We want to be rejoicing over the common salvation that we have. It is a, a joy to read about. It's a joy to talk about. It's a joy to fellowship about. And so Jude is saying, this is what I desire to do. And I'm sure it would have been an excellent letter. But there was something pressing. Sometimes, although it is right for us to, to, to press on with encouraging and, and stirring people up about their common salvation, sometimes a, a pastor needs to pause and address a particular issue, a particular subject, a particular concern that alarms him and is, is a, a, you know, a concern for the particular flock. And that's what we have here. And there are troubles outside as well as inside the church. And so what we see next after this common salvation is what I'm calling our common faith. This is ultimately what he is writing to them about. He continued that although he was planning on writing about their common salvation, he found it necessary to write appealing to them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So what is Jude talking about here? He's, first of all, talking about contending. Last week, we used a couple of illustrations to talk about that. Boxing um, was one of them, and then weightlifting was another. And even the beginning illustration about these 300 hoplite warriors is another picture of what it means to contend. It, it literally means to wrestle for something with all your might. And it can be understood as a command to, to be defending the faith, to be a defender of the faith. Now, Paul told young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. That's another way of saying contend for the faith. And then Paul, in, in looking back humbly over his life and over his ministry, he recognizes that he was a defender and a contender of the faith when he says, 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Because he knew that that was his responsibility, that this was a, a core reality of what it meant to be a leader in the church, to fight for the faith. 
Now, it needs to be noted that Jude's audience is not leadership only in the church. There's nothing in this passage about his audience that uniquely identifies this is a letter to the leaders of the churches. This is a letter to the churches. This is a letter to all the body of Christ. There is this kind of corporate dynamic that he is expressing as he is writing this letter. And so this is a command and a commission given by God through Jude to all who are called, all who are beloved, all who are kept by God for Jesus Christ. So friends, the application there or the implication of that is that it is not just a responsibility for those who are in leadership to contend for the faith. It is our responsibility to contend for the faith. Those 300 hoplite soldiers didn't say to Leonidas, hey, listen, you're our king. You fight the battle. We're running off. No, they stood there shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm with him to face this incredible army. So we're all called to unite together to be spiritual hoplite warriors taking on false teachers and false teaching. Now certainly, protecting the flock is a main responsibility of church leadership. But it is also the responsibility of every sheep. Now it's not an easy fight. It's much easier to just go with the flow of Christianity, isn't it? And and so much of American Christianity is kind of go with the flow. We've got our little routines, we've got our little habits on, it's nice, we've got a Christian music, we've got a Christian this, we've got a Christian that. Oh, you got, oh. you know, we just kind of enjoy kind of weaving around this lovely, comfortable Christian lifestyle. And we'd rather just kind of meander down the river rather than fight the rapids. But friends, life is full of rapids. Life is full of work when it comes to walking with God. Many people will say, isn't my Christian walk supposed to make life easier? Well, maybe that's what you believe because the gospel that's been presented to you is a weak and empty gospel. Counting the cost is not an easy thing. All right? Walking the narrow road rather than the broad road is not an easy thing. And sometimes we've made it so easy for people to somehow get some kind of spiritual transaction that there is no fight, there is no, no giving up of anything, there's no sacrifice, it's just I've added Jesus to my life. And friend, that's not the gospel. And we have a responsibility then to contend for the faith, to defend it, to, to, to fight for it. Why? Because of the purity of the gospel, because of the integrity of God's truth. And so we must recognize that a diminished and distorted gospel is powerless to change lives and offers people an empty hope that will lead to further unbelief. So if we're not clear with the gospel, we are actually opening a door for people to think that they're actually saved, but ultimately get to the place of further unbelief because they don't believe they need to do anything more. They don't believe that there's anything else that is required of them. I've got my ticket. Now I can just live my, live my, my Christian, warm, kind of fuzzy Christian life. I don't, I don't need anything more because they're convinced of a different gospel. So God has chosen to work his will through faithful saints who love his truth and are willing to fight for it and defend it. And so here it's saying contend, but contend for what? Contend for the faith. Now what is the faith that is being talked about here? It is not, first of all, your subjective faith or your trusting in God. It's not the faith that you have. It's not that kind of 
feeling that you have of exercising faith when we say, I'm trusting God to carry me through. Now, although we do want to have that kind of faith, this is not the kind of faith that is being talked about here. All right, what's being talked about here is what we call our objective faith. He's talking about the objective faith of every believer, the faith, which is what you and I believe to be true about Christ. It is the revealed truth or the orthodox Christian message that is universally accepted throughout the world. The objective faith is also the faith that we believe and is the foundation for our practice or living. It is the basis of our living, and that is how the apostles understood it. Listen just as I read a few verses from various writers in the Bible here. Paul called it the obedience of faith. In other words, faith is is the objective part of it, but that objective faith requires life and living. So he talks about the obedience of faith. It was also the reason why Paul labored, and he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. The accords with godliness is the lifestyle that flows out of the faith. James emphasizes, James chapter 2, verse 26, Faith apart from works is what? It's dead. So you have the faith that also results in works. Peter spoke about the great, uh, the, the tested genuineness of your faith. In other words, it's not just that I believe a, a propositional truth, but that is evidenced by how I live. 1 Peter 1.7. John said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking, what? in the truth, and it is the truth that is the basis of their walk, and that word walk is a word that describes a lifestyle, a pursuit of Christ. So the faith is not simply a list of propositions, although it includes that. When defined fully, it includes the life-changing activity of God, um, our conformity to its commands, and our ongoing obedience to Christ. So it's, it's believing the truths but it's also the implications of those truths to how we live. So what we believe and the implications of living out what we believe. Or to put it another way, trusting and obeying. <laughs> That's why there's a song, you know, just emphasizing our need to trust and to obey. Now, how is this faith described in this passage? First of all, I want to just present to you, it is a completed faith. It's once for all. I love Dick Lucas. You may not know who he is. He's a Brit, um, and uh, just love the way he succinctly says things. This is what he says about this particular section of Jude. He says, in Jude, the Christian faith is already in existence as a settled and final body of saving truths. In other words, the faith was not still being developed. The faith had already been determined. It was once for all. It had been given out over time, but it had been settled once for all. And according to Jude, it is settled already. It is a completed faith that is universally accepted and cannot be altered or changed in any way. The fact that Jesus died for our sins, the fact that he was buried, the fact that he rose again cannot be altered, cannot be changed. It is a truth that is for generation after generation. 
it has been settled and is completed. Okay? It is the faith. This faith cannot be changed, but hear this, it can be further defined. Now think about it in Jude's day. As, as the church developed and grew, there were new issues that came to the table. And so there, were, there was a need to convene councils to, to answer these questions and come to some conclusions based on the study of Scripture. So the early church said, well, we believe in Jesus. Jesus is Lord, right? And all of us in here would say, yes. Okay, then which Jesus? Well, it's the Jesus of the Gospels. Okay, so the Jesus of the Gospels, the one that we're talking about, is Lord. Okay, now this one that is the Jesus of the Gospels that is Lord is he man, or is he God, or is he a little bit of both? And how does that all work together? All right, so the council comes together and studies that question and determines that he is 100% man, and he is 100% God. Okay? Now, that was already settled. The truth of that was already settled once for all. But the defining of that truth and the discovery of that truth and the understanding of that truth was something that was ongoing as the church continued to develop and grow. So you have this, this Christ then of the Gospels that we believe who is both God and man, 100% God, 100% man. But now the question is, is he co-equal with the Father and with the, the Spirit? So another council comes together to answer that question. And there's all sorts of different heresies, all sorts of different false teaching that is happening during this development time. But it was settled once for all. There's not new gospel truth, new revelation that was already settled by Jude's time is what he's saying. It was settled already. So it is a completed faith. But notice also it was a delivered faith. Now this is the faith that has been handed down by God through the generations. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We see it fleshed out in that early church generational kind of picture. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1. Now, I would remind you, Paul says, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, past tense, which you received, past tense, in which you stand presently, and by which you are being saved, present, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. <clears throat> For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Ah, so Paul received from Christ, and then he preached to them. But he's speaking about it after the fact that he first preached to them. Now he is writing this letter to them. So there is this kind of this, this progress of the gospel. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He delivered to you. There is a deliverance of this faith. It's a delivered faith, and it has been continued to be delivered through the years. Now, a few pages back in chapter 11, verse 2, talk about delivering the faith. This is what Paul says. Now, I command you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Well, what are the traditions? You know, is it all the garments that we think? Is it the way, you know, you, you kind of, you know, you wave the incense and all that kind of stuff? No, the traditions is another word that's talking about the faith. 
and the, all the responsibilities that come out of that faith. Things like the Lord's Supper, things like baptism. He established his, you know, the, 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 the faith and the, the implications of that faith already. These are the traditions that have been handed down through the ages. So when we talk about tradition, a lot of times, especially in contemporary church, there are people like, oh, we don't like tradition. Well, there's tradition that is man-made tradition, and then there's traditions that come out of a passage like this that are God's truths that are handed down through the ages. And that is what's going on here. This is the faith. This is what Paul was telling Timothy to do in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, where he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust, in other words, deliver to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there's this transfer, there's this delivering of this faith. So this faith is completed, it's once for all, it's a delivered faith, but it's also what I'm calling a common faith. This is to the saints. This is what we believe. This is what true believers all over the world hold to. It is the common faith. This is the source of our common salvation. Now, why is it important to defend or or to contend for the faith? Jude isn't simply trying to pick a fight in order to somehow, you know, raise his presence in the body of Christ. He hasn't tweeted these 25 verses so that he'll be, you know, getting attention or get his 15 minutes of fame or get thousands of likes on his Facebook, Instagram, or his um, blog. No, he's concerned about the foundation of, of the faith and the soundness of our common salvation remaining strong and healthy. On August 17th of this year at 9 a.m., crews detonated the explosives of 13-story Warren Hall at Cal State East Bay. Some of you saw it. It took 10 seconds to implode and the landmark reference point for East Bay was finally gone, which was for me a sad thing. Because I used to say, I, used, I live up there. See that building? I live up there. Now I just point up, it's like, see where that building used to be? I live up there. Of course, they can't see where it used to be, right? Now, this is how we usually think of, of things being destroyed quickly with great pizzazz. But what's normal as it relates to the church is a slow imploding, day by day, week by week, month by month. And that is often the case it is, even with believers who are struggling in sin, it's more of a day by day, week by week thing. It's not all of a sudden. And if there isn't all of a sudden, probably behind that all of a sudden, there was a day by day, week by week, you know, giving of ground along the way. There's a story told about a man who lived on a, lived in a, um, a building that was 25 stories high, and he lived on the 14th floor. And every day on his way out to work, he would go down to the basement. Some of these really big buildings have to have low basements. And so he went down to the bottom basement every day, and he would chisel out one brick every day. No one knew about it at all. Over 10 years later, he had been doing it day by day. On the 20th floor... They began to see cracks form. And of course, they, they called the, you know, the landlords and they came out to see it and see cracks. So what are we going to do? And we'll try and patch them up and 
We'll try and, you know, cover them with paint and all that kind of stuff. But the issue wasn't the cracks. The cracks were there. Why? Because the foundation had been eroded over time. You get the picture. And friends, if we are not faithful to contend for the faith, the end result is that the building, God's church, will crumble because the foundational truths that need to be there to to hold it up are going to be removed. And that's why in verse 20, one of the things that Paul tells, uh, not Paul, but Jude tells his his audience is this, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. He recognizes the need to equip and to edify and to build one another up in the faith. So this contending for the faith allows God's people to build one another up in the faith. But if that faith is diluted, distorted, that church cannot build itself up in the faith because it's allowed false teaching to come in and the attempts at building will fall short or you might say the equipment or the tools or the materials of that building will be so inferior it will not be able to stand now friends that's the that's the picture here that is the theme that is the point that he's trying to get across in this letter but now here's the occasion that he is he is looking at as to the reason why he's writing this letter so notice secondly an ungodly infiltration Now the question is, who are these infiltrators? In verse 4 it says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people. Well, there's three things that we can see from from this little short part of the verse. First of all, they are unnamed. They are unnamed. They're certain people. Um, The certain people become in verse 8 and 10, these people. In verses 12, 16, and 19, they become these So these people are more likely pastors or traveling prophets or people in positions of leadership and influence in the church who have a voice, who have an opportunity to speak and to to put their seeds of, of distortion into the people. The fact that they are called certain people is an indicator that Jude's readers knew who they were. That's actually a common thing if you go through other parts of Scripture when when the expression certain people is used to describe people that those people actually know about. There may also have been a sense of growing disdain in the development of these statements throughout his letter from these pe- certain people to these people to these. kind of Each one, kind of he's getting angrier and angrier. It's not because he's an unloving guy. It's because he's contending for the faith. And he's concerned about how the distortion of the gospel is affecting the church. And there's a holy anger that can be present with any pastor who is concerned about caring for his flock and he sees you know, an unhealthy disease coming into that flock. And because of the trouble that they had already caused in the church, which he describes in verses 8 through 13, this is stuff that has already taken place. They've, they've, they've come in and just kind of distorted your love feast. And he goes on and talks about how they've been present in that church. Not only are they unnamed, but they're also unnoticed. They hadn't attended membership class and said in answer to their testimony, hey, I want to join the church and I am a false teacher. That wasn't how they came in. 
They didn't kind of have the t-shirt on that says, you need to look out for me. They came in unnoticed, which means that they, they were inside the church already, and they pose a great threat now. And so opponents to the gospel who are on the inside, or on the outside, I should say, who throw ridicule, doubt, and persecution on the church, they can be seen as the enemy. And they typically will strengthen the church and the resolve of that church. But perverters of the gospel who enter in and are within the church and are working kind of behind the scenes unnoticed typically cause disunity, confusion, destruction. And the issue here is this. They crept in unnoticed. They, they wormed their way in. If you remember, we brought up Ron last week, not because of anything that, that he is, but because he works with, what, termites. They were termiting the church. They were coming in, poking holes, making their presence. But the people couldn't see. They weren't aware. Now, friends, our church is not unique in that sense. You're saying, okay, well, who are you going to call out? I don't know, because I can't see you. But we can't fool ourselves into thinking that can't happen here. And that's one of the reasons why, as an eldership, we need to say, one of our responsibilities is to protect the flock. Yes, from those on the outside, but from those who have made their way in on the inside who are now promoting things that do not conform to the faith. church hadn't taken notice of their presence. They had been oblivious to their activity. They hadn't noticed their sin and the kind of teaching they were promoting. And just understand, Jude here is addressing some sinful behavior, and he'll go through that. And that sinful behavior had been taking place in the church. And the implication there is that the church had observed that. And somehow it had not stirred them up to do anything about it because they had been slowly been desensitized to their lifestyle and their behavior. So like the old Chinese proverb says, if you want to know about the water, don't ask who. Don't ask the fish. Because for them, what water? And so many times we can be so caught up in what we're doing that the slow change and the, the, the kind of moving away from a, 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 a faith-centered Christianity has, has diminished into a, an acceptance of sin-centered Christianity. And we're no longer alarmed or alerted to things that are happening. We've been softened by false teaching that has crept in unnoticed. We don't even know it's there. And what we need is we need help from the outside to see the sin that is around us. Now, they had taken the church by surprise, but they had not taken God by surprise. He knows they're present, and he knows what they are up to. Now, they're not sectarian. They're not separatists trying to take people out of the church and to start a new church across town. That's not their goal. Their goal is to undermine the gospel in that church so that they can live a certain lifestyle and promote that, and they're staying in the church. So they're not a sectarian or separatist group. Also, they're not some kind of a quasi-Christian movement like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or Christian science even. 
And you know, there's something that is often said that is rather deceptive about Christian science, and that is they're neither Christian nor are they scientific, but that's for another occasion. Um, but there are these quasi-movements. So they're not saying, hey, listen, we want to start something different and new. They're saying we want to come in and we want to change what is considered to be biblical Christianity to be something different. They're trying to affect the church, the true church. Now, not only are they unnamed, unnoticed, but they're also identified as ungodly. I don't know if you noticed when we read through, when Debbie read through the whole passage, there's this one little section where it's like ungodly, 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 ungodly. I mean, they were ungodly. That's the point. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. They may have used biblical terminology. They may have been accepted at times of fellowship at the Lord's table but they were ungodly, and the word denotes an outrage against deity. They did not like God. Ungodly. It is the opposite of the fear of God. It is an accusation, um, not so much of their theology as it is their morality. That's how the word is used. And it is evident by the context of this letter, that it is true. If you notice throughout this letter, the reason why groups are being judged is not so much their theology, although that's there, it's by their behavior and their sensual and their sexual behavior that they think they can do, but God ends up judging them. Now, certainly people in Sodom and Gomorrah had a theology, right? But that's not what they were judged for, ultimately. They were judged for their behavior, their sensuality, which of course flows out of a distorted theology. Right? So the fact of their ungodliness is the basis for their condemnation. Now get this, their condemnation is not up for um, is not up for you know consideration. It was settled down years ago. What does it say? Hold on. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Long ago, they were already determined. They were already judged. Now, what Jude is saying is that these false teachers are cut from the same cloth as the examples that he will give us in verses 15 through 16. The same stuff is going on. And they're not learning from these Old Testament examples. But they're the same kind of people. And Dick Lucas, in his words, just love the way he puts things. It's very, very simple. He says, the world delights to find ungodly pastors. They love to find Christian leaders who can be one of the people who enjoy hanging out at the bars, living and acting like the world, and are open about their feeble and frail character. Why? Because people like to do the same things. And if a pastor is willing to do that, then it's okay for me to go do that. And it's not about specifically going to the bar, but it's the whole attitude of like, hey, I can be just like the world, and so can you. And we can still worship together. Those kinds of pastors may have great success for a season because they make it acceptable for people to enter into the church 
without changing their lives. But the true apostolic gospel is what our lives, or is that our lives are changed through regeneration and then we come to Christ. In other words, change doesn't take place you know, after some kind of a commitment to God. Change takes place at that point of salvation. You are regenerated. You are made new. You're not like, okay, I think I'll choose you, God, and then, okay, now you can start working on me. You're made new, and then you seek to conform to be who you already are in Christ. So we, who are ones who would embrace, just like Jude and and his church would embrace this apostolic gospel, this faith that was settled years ago, we we shake off worldliness in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. And our identity is not bound up in being like the world, but in glorifying the creator of the universe. And friends, if, if your desire is somehow to be more like the world and you're thinking it's a spiritual endeavor, I, I, I ask you to please allow the warning signs to start going off. You may be believing a diluted and a distorted gospel. Now the question is, what are these infiltrators doing? And that's what we're left with as we move to the end of these verses, in particular verse 4. They were busy planting seeds of gospel dilution and distortion in the soil of the churches. Notice what it says. Who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now friends, this is a powerful, powerful text. And this is a powerful description of what is not only, only happened in the early church, but just think about it. This is the early church. I mean, Christ hasn't been gone that long. And this is already happening in the church. It's also a picture of what's happening in the church today. First of all, they were taking advantage of God's grace. They changed, they perverted, they twisted, they altered God's grace into a license or a freedom for sin. Now, there's a difference between a freedom for sin and a recognition that we do sin. Freedom for sin says, hey, God loves you, go ahead and sin. It's not a big deal because he loves you, he'll forgive you. The realization of sin is saying, God loves you and he doesn't want you to sin, but he recognizes that you will stumble because you are not yet glorified. You're not in the presence of God in, in, in heaven yet. He recognizes that struggle of progressive sanctification. There's a huge difference. There, uh, sorry, rather than modeling a life of, uh, dedicated to increasing conformity to the image of Christ, their lives were characterized by immorality and sensuality. They were given to shameful, sinful, lustful desires. They were living how they pleased in continual sensuality. The word sensual meant to convey loose living marked by sexual pleasure and greed. So the word sensuality meant to convey loose living marked by sexual pleasure and greed. My first ever trip to Russia was right at the end of Bill Clinton's presidency. And I go into this classroom of 30 pastors, and here I am, I'm in my 30s, 
I'm standing up before them. I'm teaching them. And one of the guys raises his hand. Actually, no, in Russia, they don't raise their hand. They just stand up. Um, it's a whole different system. And he challenged me, and he said, how can America, being a Christian nation, allow a Baptist president to stay in office when he is committing adultery in the White House? Now, of course, there's a lot to unpack in that question. There's cultural things, misperceptions, all sorts of things. So suffice it to say, I had to begin by saying this. America is not a Christian nation. Oh, it has a Judeo-Christian heritage, and many of the founding fathers were believers, or maybe even deists, we could say, but it's not a Christian nation. Secondly, I had to explain that the word Baptist, you have to understand, these were Baptist Russian pastors who are looking over in America at a Baptist president, okay? So I had to explain to them that the Baptist denomination had both a solid evangelical side as well as a very liberal and unbiblical side, and that Bill Clinton's church was a liberal church that was unwilling to act biblically in counseling him and or dis disciplining him with or for his sin. And then I had to tell them that I was ashamed as well as embarrassed by the fact that he behaved the way he did and that he was unrepentant in what he did and that he claimed to be a Baptist. And that his behavior was scandalous, that he could carry on in such inappropriate ways without regard for God and his soul. And friends, that, that scenario is repeated all across this country by people who claim to be a part of the church, but whose lives are sensual and find justification in the grace of God for their sensuality. It's okay to be sexual. It's okay to be sensual. It's okay to live my life how I want because I have God. What? And so, friends, you know what was difficult for my Russian brothers and sisters? And still is today. The whole topic of the perseverance of the saints. This whole once saved, always saved. Because they would look at that and say, well, you say you're, you're saved automatically and you know, that's it. And, you know, it never changes. And you're living a life like this? And, of course, it was an opportunity to teach them, hey, listen, someone who has a lifestyle like this, who is unrepentant, who's hardened against truth, clearly then is only a religious person, is not a true follower of Christ. And you have to make those distinctions. Now, these false teachers seem to be a part of an ideology that says it doesn't matter what you do with your body, only that you love Jesus. But let me remind you, of a beautiful verse found in the book of Titus. Turn to Titus, and you probably know it by heart. It's the core, it's the meat and potatoes of Titus, um, or the tortilla, beans, and cheese of Titus, for those of you. Um, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared. We're talking about the same subject matter, aren't we? Of course, the grace of God there is talking about Christ. Christ has appeared. He has been declared. He's been put on display. And all that, that is implied in Christ coming and being put on display on the cross and dying for our sins. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce what? Ungodliness. Just get the connection there. 
the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness, not to embrace ungodliness, and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Just get the connection of what, what Titus, what Paul is saying to Titus here, and then connect it over with Jude. And so, according to Jude, coming to God through Christ does not mean that we know we now play fast and loose with the moral imperatives or commands of God's word. To be a Christian means that we are justified, declared righteous, and saved from the power of sensuality to progressive sanctification that moves us daily, moment by moment, to being like Christ. Our focus, our goal is not sensuality. Our focus and our goal is to be more and more like Christ. John Calvin defends God's word and his wisdom when he says this. It is bad to live under a prince who permits nothing, but much worse to live under a prince who permits everything. We are living in the days of Jude, a permissive generation, a permissive, sensual, sexual generation. And friends, it's the reason for us to contend for the faith. But notice also, not only taking advantage of God's grace, but throwing off God's authority. Who pervert the grace of of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, both talking about Christ here, Jesus Christ. So moving from what Luther coined as antinomianism, which would be living how you want and just presuming upon the grace of God, these false teachers now express an attitude of anti-authority. Their loose living is now accompanied with their rejection that Jesus is their Lord and Master or that can tell them what to do. They had replaced the centrality of Jesus Christ with a man-made perversion. And friends, this is not a problem that is limited to the early church. The Lordship of Christ and our need to be obedient to his commands was, is, and will continue to be at the heart of biblical Christianity. Is Jesus Lord? Is he Lord? You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. The question is whether or not you are willing to submit to his lordship. So if you want to do what you want to do, what do you do? You somehow um, salve your conscience, sear your conscience to the fact that Jesus needs to be Lord of your life and you reject him. And that's what's going on here. Either you believe that Jesus is Lord of your life or you don't. Either you believe that he has the right to speak to you about how you live your life, or you don't. There's no middle ground. And any attempt to live in the middle ground, James says, is a double-minded man that is unstable in all his ways. Now, friends, there's a key word that Jude uses to explain the rejection of Christ as their authority. It's the word only. He is our only Lord and Master. Today people say that Jesus is only one of many ways to get to heaven. Jude says that Jesus is the only way. He isn't just 
a great leader, teacher, or example for us to follow. He isn't just a man who inspired people to give up their lives for some kind of liberation cause. No, he's the only master and Lord. He's the only one to be worshipped and obeyed. He is the exclusive one that offers this invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It wasn't, hey, listen, if you're struggling, if you're burdened down, you know, I'm an option out there. No, he says, come to me, and I will give you rest. Now, friends, I want to just kind of wind our time down with with a general application, and then there's going to be kind of a charge to us as a church. The general application is really important. I want to just, you know, thank David Helm. You don't know who he is, but I think it's important to give him credit, who opened my eyes to these two practical battles that we must engage in as we contend for the faith in this kind of antinomian and anti- authority culture and the two areas of battle are the battle of inspiration and the battle of interpretation this is really really important first of all i want you to notice the battle for interpretation this really speaks to this whole idea of taking advantage of the grace of god because in order to get to the place where you're going to take advantage of the grace of god what do you have to do you have to reinterpret what scripture says And so there's this battle for interpretation. So we must all engage in a growing our understanding of what constitutes proper biblical interpretation. How do we understand? How we understand the Bible? How do we we know the methodologies and the tools and the resources that are right for us to come to a proper understanding of what the Bible says? It's called hermeneutics. Big word, okay? Now, why is it important? Because those who want to live as they please and maintain their freedom in Christ, they would call it, will always have new and trendy methods of interpretation that suits their agenda. Now, you may remember what was called the emergent church, which is probably about, what, eight to ten years old now when it first kind of hit, hit, hit the fan. And one of the things that happened with the emergent church was a new interpretation. And they put a lot of emphasis in the red letters of the Bible. What Jesus says is more important than what Paul says. Oh, it makes sense. Oh, yeah, well, Jesus is God. Therefore, we should listen to what he says over what Paul says, except for the fact that we're not talking here about uniquely what Jesus says. All of God's word is equally inspired. It's a little subtlety, but it's clarity to help us make sure that we don't misinterpret God's word. And so interpretation is critical for us fighting this fight and contending for the faith. Interpretation, and there will always be new, trendy interpretations that come along. Secondly, biblical inspiration. And friends, this is, this is a battle that, that the church has been fighting in more recent years the battle for inspiration, we must all seek to solidify our belief that the Bible is God's word. I'm going to put an end here, and is sufficient for all of life. We might all say, oh yeah, we believe that the Bible is God's word. And even, you know, some places say, yeah, we believe that the Bible is God's word. It is, it is our final authority for faith and practice. So yeah, we agree with that. 
except they interpret final authority as being after we've gone everywhere else, then we'll go to the Bible. No, that final authority means this is the authority. This is the authority. This is inspired. The Word of God is God's Word breathed out. And it's important that we study that, that, that subject and that doctrine of, of the inspiration of God's Word. But now it's become, okay, we believe that the Bible is breathed out, but it's not enough. It's not sufficient. I need the Bible and something else in order to get me through life. I've got this big problem, and ah, the Bible, there's some verses there, but how can those verses help me with my problem? And so what happens is you have people that have kind of a, a surface understanding of the Bible. They're not allowing the, the Bible to, to give them the tools for living. They're just kind of like verses that kind of inspire me and kind of push me along. And, and no, the Bible is itself saying it is sufficient. It is what you and I need. It is what God has given us so that we can face the trials and difficulties that are before us in a way that we glorify Him. So those who want to squirm their way out from under the authority of Christ will do all they can to undermine the integrity of God's Word. Because if you undermine the integrity of God's Word, then you don't have to believe the Christ that's in God's Word, and you can recreate your Christianity how you like, which of course is no Christianity at all. It's, it's a false gospel. That's why it's a false teaching promoted by false teachers. So Jude's words of alarm and counsel are a clarion call for the body of Christ to remember that a godly life begins by acknowledging that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Master and that all of life is to be lived for his glory, not for self. Let me say that again. This is a clarion call for the body of Christ to remember that a godly life begins by acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord and Master, and that all of life is to be lived for His glory and not for self. Now, we know that to be true, but we can know it to be true so much that we forget, the, the might want to say, the, the, the package and the power of what that is. How important it is for Jesus Christ to be Master and Lord, and how important it is for us to commit ourselves to living our lives for His glory, not for our own selfish endeavors. And that ultimately is what these false teachers were promoting, the total opposite of that. So friends, as we conclude here, here's my charge to you. All right, the Christian life is a battle. And we must be willing to fight. We must be willing to fight. We must get used to putting on the shields and picking up the sword and being alert to false teaching and false teachers that are out there. It is not unloving to be alert to those things. It is discerning. It is caring. Secondly, we must be willing to fight together. You can't just put all that responsibility on one person or just a few people. It is a responsibility of all of us. That's what Jude is doing here. He's writing to the churches and he's writing to all the people in the churches. This is our responsibility. And like those 300 hoplite warriors, we do gather together, we put our shields together, we put our shoulders together, and we take on the barrage of false teaching. How? By contending for the faith. And that, of course, means that we need to know the faith. And we need to study it. We need to be able to be clear with it. And that's a challenge for all of us. And we need to grow in that. Now, it will be a hard fight. It will be an honorable fight. And it will be a fight for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And friends, you say, well, I just, I just don't feel like I'm equipped. 
friends, there are so many times I don't feel like I'm equipped. That's just, and I would say any pastor out there would say the same thing. But we do the best with what we've learned and gleaned over the years and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to give us words and wisdom or insight into that moment to defend the faith because it is the Lord's faith and we have been given the responsibility to be stewards of it. The third thing is this. The Christian life is a battle and we must be willing to fight because our marriages depend on it. Your marriage depends on whether or not you're willing to contend for the faith. Are you willing to fight to say what Jesus Christ says in his word about your marriage, about your role as a wife, about your role as a husband, and how you are to interact with each other for the glory of God? If you're not willing to fight for that, then your approach to marriage is going to end up being something outside of Scripture. And it's absolutely necessary because our families depend on it, how you parent, how you discipline, how you train, how you raise up these children, whether you provoke, whether you can see that you provoke, whether you're you know, causing great discouragement, whether you're just you know, abandoning your children, all sorts of things that Scripture speaks to. And we must contend for the faith. We must recognize that Jesus is Lord and Master and is wanting to be listened to on that topic. And that he speaks to how we live. And he's also, it's also important because our souls depend on it. Friends, your, your growth in Christ depends on whether or not you're willing to fight for the faith. Because if you have a distorted gospel, then your growth in Christ ends up being derailed. Because you have a distorted view of how you are to grow to him. And there's a final thing here that I want to say, and that's this. This battle must begin with the men of the church. You're a man here, I'm speaking to you. Yes, it's my job as your pastor, as your teacher, to make sure that this is true. And I will do all, all I can to labor and to agonize for the glory of God and for you in this endeavor. But you as men also carry responsibility for the church and for your families and for your marriages to say what God's word says is important to listen to and to live by So we must take God's word seriously. We must fight for our marriages and for our children and for the glory of God to be done in the church. And we don't do it in isolation. We do it together because we need each other. We are called, friends, to contend for the faith in the context of antinomianism and anti-authority. Not an easy task, is it? But it's what God's calling us to. And Jude, the, 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 the gracious, loving pastor, is appealing to us to listen, to be aware, to be alert, and to learn from his letter. Next week, we'll, we'll understand how this all plays out and why the examples in the Old Testament really feed our understanding of what is going on presently with people who are willing to be ungodly. And then eventually when we get to verse 17 and following, we'll, we'll see some practical things that we can be doing as a church, as people, for the glory of God in this kind of culture. Lord, help us today to consider what you have said. And Lord, I, I recognize that even in, in our small church, Lord, there may be some people that are, are here 
and they've been under the ministry of your word for a long time, but they have not yet come to the place where they have embraced you as Lord and Savior. For whatever reason, they've been um, unwilling to humble themselves, unwilling to hear the gospel fully. Maybe they've been kind of knocking the the, the blows of the gospel to get their attention away and they just don't want to be impacted by it. Lord, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would, would work and penetrate that heart. And if, if there's someone here today, Lord, that, that, that needs to come and embrace you as Lord and Savior, Lord, that they would do it and they would do it now and they would do it today. Or if there's someone here that needs help with that, Lord, that you would just allow us to be able to, 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 just to build that relationship with them. Lord, there's a humility that is necessary, but Lord, there is joy that comes through knowing you. And Lord, there's, there's so many of us that are so easily caught off in the, the, the mundane activities of life where we forget that the Lord is our master. And we forget that he directs our paths and that he guides us along the way and that he has something to say about how we live. And Lord, I wonder if there are people today that just simply need to go before you and to repent of their sin and to say, Lord, forgive me for my sensuality. Forgive me, Lord, for uh, allowing me to presume upon your grace. Lord, forgive me for, for setting aside you as my authority. And then, Lord, maybe we need to come to you and ask forgiveness for, for not being faithful to contend, to see the importance of that. That's just... Well, it's just something that pastors do. No, this is something, Lord, that we all have a responsibility to do. So, Lord, may we together as a church take up this mantle, this responsibility, this, this gift that you've given us, and to do it with joy. Lord, not with a harshness, not with a contentious attitude, but, Lord, with a firm sternness that is gospel-driven and that is seeking to glorify you because you are a great God and Savior. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.